leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. to be strange times when people feel the need to take to the streets to voice their support for science, but that's what happened earlier this month as the second annual March for Science was held in Washington, D.C. and 250 other cities around the world. To mark the occasion, we spoke to Mary Woolley, CEO of Research America, about the public perception of science the state of funding for science in the United States, and why scientists increasingly feel the need to step off the sidelines and advocate for what they do. Mary, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. We're talking a few days after the 2018 March for Science. We're going to talk about spending on biomedical research, the, the public view of science, and the evolution of scientists as advocates. I want to start, though, with a January 2018 poll question from Research America that I found both shocking and concerning. It found only 16% of Americans could name a living scientist. What should we make of that, and why do you think that is? Well, Daniel, it's, uh, yes, it's, uh, shocking, uh, to be sure. And Research America has for 25 years now commissioned public opinion surveys to help us better understand the, the public's, uh, concerns about, um, and its enthusiasms for the scientific enterprise. So it's not the only thing we do. We do more than commission surveys, but it's a bedrock for us. And it's quite concerning and has been so for decades now that only 16% of Americans can name a living scientist. And I think that is largely because the culture of science hasn't traditionally included outreach to the public. And the result of that is scientists are basically invisible. And overcoming invisibility is a big part of what we talk about to our members um, in the Research America Alliance. It's, it's really hard to convey the point that science works in the public's interest from a platform of invisibility. Um, and it's not getting any better, although I will say, and you referenced the March for Science, uh, starting last year with the first March and again this year, it's a really tangible step forward that the science can, people, scientists themselves and people who are stakeholders in science, very interested in science, um, 
did decide to stand up and be visible. And there's more to do than just one day a year, but it's a great uh, step forward. Your polling data suggests broad support for federal investment in biomedical research, by and large, while there are some differences between Republicans and Democrats, there doesn't to be, seem to be a strong party divide. Where are Americans today on the value of biomedical research and the importance of federal investment in research? Well, um, as you point out, uh, this we have found, and it uh, plays out um, and all the time in the halls of Congress and on the floor of Senate and House, we see strong bipartisan support for the National Institutes of Health and for medical and health research broadly stated. Um, this has been true for a very long time, and it's reflected in um, surveys that we've commissioned over the years. Uh, it's in some ways not surprising because the purpose of Research for Health is health, and disease and disability uh, don't decide to attack based on what party an individual is aligned with. Uh, we all um, have an equal opportunity, if you will. Well, when you think about the factors that drive the support, is it that people just see a, a direct potential benefit to themselves, or is there a broader concern about economic competitiveness or the health and well-being of, of the nation as a whole? Right. It's both. It's both, Daniel. I think um, overwhelmingly, you know, at 50,000 feet level, it's the brand of science itself, the brand of hope and aspiration. The aspiration to be better, not only to feel better, but have our nation be better. Uh, the public wants science to succeed, and the sooner the better. Um, public wants the United States to be the uh, world leader in pretty much every venture and enterprise you can name, and that certainly includes science. And the reason, a part of the reason at least, that uh, we, we hope, we the public hope for leadership is so that the benefits of research and innovation accrue to our nation and to the world at large, but we want especially the economic benefit to be here first. And that is just um, a reality that people are well aware of, that when something is, if you will, invented here, uh, there is an economic benefit to the nation, new startups, um, early opportunity to take advantage of a, whether it's a, a new uh, drug, a new prevention strategy, a new device, um, or in, in the broader science field, a new technology. Um, Americans are eager for the new, for the better. Uh, how does America fare these days with regards to research spending compared to, to other nations? Well, that's a very good question, and it's a concern. You know, international global competitiveness is a concern that we've heard increasingly from the Congress um, and from the public, as uh, I'll tell you about specific comparisons in a minute. But just overall, uh, we've seen a downward trend over the past several years in the percentages of Americans who say that it will be the United States that is the leader 
in uh, science overall and in uh, also a separate question for research and development in the medical and health arena. So uh, people are concerned that our lead is slipping and their elected officials um, have that, share that concern and speak out about it. So right now, the United States ranks 11th um, in the world on spending on research and development overall. That's on um, a per capita basis? On a, on a percentage of gross domestic product, GDP. We are still spending more in absolute dollars than any other nation, but that's about to change. Um, both of those things um, are, are dynamic and change all the time. But, for example, I said we were number 11. Germany is number 9. It's about to move up to number 3, just based on um, a decision by the government to invest in a much more robust way, and that's the percent of GDP, I'll say again, spent on R&D. Uh, China has been moving up steadily uh, for some years now and has already overtaken the U.S. in terms of number of scientific publications. That just happened earlier this year. Uh, so there are plenty of signs, too many signs, that the United States is slipping and not maintaining that a long-standing history of number one world leadership. Uh, we really sort of invented the playbook for turning investment in our public investment in R&D and a policy environment that stimulates private investment, of turning that into an economic engine that uh, the likes of which the world literally has never seen and also substantially improving the health of our population. And so that playbook is kind of open. It's uh, been available for other nations to emulate, and they're more than just emulating it. They're stepping it up, and have several have just explicitly said that they're not just going to move ahead a little bit. They're going to leapfrog. And it's really we think it's time for the U.S. to consider doing that as well. As you look at the budgets that have come out of the Bush administration, I'm sorry, as you, as you look at the budgets that have come out of the Trump administration, how do you see the administration's view of investment in, in research? Well, we, um, we do look carefully, uh, regardless of who is the president, at their proposed budget. And let me first frame this by saying that um, it is a proposed budget, but it's really constitutionally the responsibility of the Congress, not the president, not the administration, to pass um, a yearly, an annual budget for the nation. But the president's budget, you know, certainly demonstrates priorities of the administration and uh, sort of bully pulpit talking points. And unfortunately, the president's uh, budget for the last fiscal year and for the one that we will enter on October 1st, the so-called fiscal 2019 budget, um, are concerning when it comes to investment in science. They're robust in investment for defense, um, and that is another important national priority, but uh, much weaker, even providing cuts in science. Uh, that's um, as I say, a, a disappointment, and we've spoken out on that, and we hope to see um, improvement. And there, there are some pockets of 
of investment, including for science as well as treatment to address the opioid crisis, and that's a, a, a big positive. Well, you're, you're right about Congress having the budget authority, which I guess you would think is a good thing given the the way the 2018 budget worked out. We, we saw significant spending increases in, in research despite the, the president's proposed budget. How well did research do in the budget, and how did we get that given what looked like it could have shaped up to be a disastrous prospect? Right. Well, I... Um credit several factors. Uh, first of all, Daniel, you're absolutely right that uh, we saw increases to the federal science agencies, uh, very nice increases, not unprecedented, but very solid and larger than in past years, uh, for sure. Um, a big part of the reason that this happened is the built-up um, frustration of not just the science community, but the Congress for spending more money on a bipartisan priority, uh, especially health-related research, but research more broadly as well. Um, and because this year the bill was tightly designed to provide increases for both defense and non-defense discretionary funding, which includes the science agencies, um, at a sort of equitable par, uh, not exactly very complicated formulas, but because uh, there was no question that there was going to be increases in the defense budget, um, it, it was possible to drive healthy increases in science as well. And we have, I want to add one other thing because it's a really important um, piece of the success story, and that is the extraordinary champions we have in the Congress right now um, in not just occupying a seat in the Congress, but in critically important seats on, appro on appropriations committees that have to do with funding the federal science agencies. So they are on board. And it's really exciting um, to see them work together and to see their counterparts, the ranking members, um, join them in doing so. We're in this time of what may prove to be a golden age of disinformation. The legitimacy of science at times is called into question, whether it's the safety of vaccines or, or the reality of climate change. What do you make of that challenge to the notion of science itself? Well, that's a big question there, Daniel. Um, certainly seems to be an age of disinformation on every front, on every topic. Uh, new uh, survey data, actually, I just saw from Yale and George Mason University uh, shows, and this is good news, that uh, there's been an increase among the public in its a level of certainty that global warming is taking place. Now five out of six Americans say this is the case. So uh, that's a, a positive. Uh, more, let me say, philosophically speaking, there's always been questions about science. It goes back to Galileo. Questioning the new, questioning the received wisdom of the day, and there's always been agents of myths or disinformation, whether the people who say the moon landing was fake or merchants of patent medicine or fake cancer cures. But what's different now is that it's 
a wide open communication world for anybody who has the slightest interest uh, just even in passing can watch science in practically real effectively real time and draw their own conclusions we can all be our own journalists we can all be our own pundits uh, we can spread good information or bad uh, and that's why it's even more important for scientists themselves to be engaging in the conversation because there's great credibility attached by the public to scientists, much more so than is attached to a whole range of other professions, including elected officials, including journalists. Um, scientists are very highly regarded, but it gets back to the fact that they're invisible. And seeing this kind of disinformation may um, stimulate some scientists to, to back off, to just tear out their hair and say, you know, boy, it's something I don't want to touch. But that's the wrong way to go. Uh, it's time to engage with the public and treat skepticism as the characteristic of science, scientists that it really is. So if people are, what I mean by that is that if people are expressing skepticism about any element of science, uh, it's appropriate for scientists to say, to label it as skepticism and say, you sound like a skeptic there, you're asking questions. That's the way I was trained. You're talking like a scientist. And have a different kind of conversation instead of trying to change the content information from the get-go. You touched on the March for Science earlier, but I'd like to go back to that. We, we had the second one this weekend. What's the significance of these marches, and do you have any sense they do anything to inform lawmakers' views or, or on science-related policy issues? Yeah, well... Um, yeah, it was it was exciting. I was uh, happy to march in, here in Washington on April 14th, and um, I think that the the purpose served by the march is very much the point I've mentioned several times now about increasing the visibility um, of the science community, and the second part is increasing. Uh, increasingly empower members of the science community to literally stand up and be counted, as in a march, and also uh, learn how to speak to policymakers or to the public who ultimately are voting for policymakers about what it is that science does to serve the public's interests. Uh, in some interviews I did um, uh, during the march, I really emphasize that we can't just stop with marching once a year. The science community really should be engaging on a regular basis to break down that old culture of, and it is old, it's out of date, and it's not doing anybody any good, that culture of science that says don't engage outside the lab, outside the university, um, but rather to step up and do the opposite uh, with the knowledge that it works. There was a great success not only with the budgets uh, this, just in this past uh, few weeks, but also in the effort uh, to make sure that graduate students' stipends weren't taxed. And that had been proposed by the administration about a year ago now. But that was stopped in its tracks. And the point is that advocacy does work. It's not just 
it, we're way past the days where one or two people can make a phone call and be fix everything for science. Right. Everybody has a role to play. What role and responsibilities do you think scientists have to speak in, in defense of science and to help educate the public? And do you think this view that scientists have about their role in public policy has evolved at all? I do. I do think it has. I, we've seen it um, just in our uh, work here at Research America in having many more scientists, especially young scientists, be in touch with us for advice, for connections, for uh, offers to uh, be of assistance in engaging policymakers, engaging the public via the media or directly. Um, and I think the, uh, the old norms on this are indeed breaking down, and it's a good thing. So evolution, if you, as you put it, is taking place. Uh, I think the right thing for the, the right way for the science community to frame engagement with the public is very much around this concept of, of saying and conveying, I work for you. Rather than saying, I'm an astrophysicist, I'm a microbiologist, I'm a fill-in-the-blank. When somebody says, so what is it that you do, you know, whether they're trying to remember, they're a distant relative maybe and don't remember, or somebody that you just met. People typically say, so what do you do? And the, the best thing to say is, I work for you. And have a conversation about how science serves the public's interest including the part that, uh, for many scientists, it's funded uh, in whole or in part by the taxpayer. So there's an accountability aspect here. But there's also an obligation to earn the public's trust um, every day. And when that trust is there and that visibility is there, we can be more confident that steady uh, increases to science budget uh, as long as we have problems to solve and need science to solve them, there ought to be robust budget increases and good policies that are going to stimulate and assist science rather than hold it back. Scientists that want to get more involved in, in educating the public and, and speaking to policymakers, how can they go about that? Well, uh, one way is to just do it, um, to... Uh, connect with others. Sometimes there's you know, a nice feeling about doing things in a community. Uh, there are many um, now in academia all over the country. There's uh, postdoc groups that are forming around engaging the public and working on public policy. Um, and for faculty, that's certainly um, available through scientific society membership and otherwise. And if people are looking for ideas, I would encourage them to check out our website, which is researchamerica.org, um, for lots of ideas. We, we're uh, loaded with them and happy uh, to help. Mary Willie, CEO of Research America. Mary, thanks as always. Great to talk to you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.